Can you open up to the book of John, chapter 8? Hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world, there was a, uh, an industrious young man by the name of Alexander. We know him as Alexander the Great. And at one point in his uh, traversing the globe and turning it into his own kingdom and empire, there was a, a story that has survived from history. We believe it to be true because it's written down, but who knows the reality of it? But he, he, he came across a tribe in India that as Alexander the Great had been trekking right across Asia and colonizing and establishing peace and prosperity wherever he went, he found a tribe in India that had never yet discovered or maintained at least fire. That is that in the ancient world, every time the sun went behind the clouds for days on end in, in storm season or, or maybe long winters or, or even just at night, they, they were with, without light. They never cooked with fire. They never uh, utilized it for their industry. They had forged nothing. They had, had, uh, had utilized heat in, in no way for their, for, 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 for their work. They, they had never seen or utilized fire. Can you imagine? Just The sun goes down. It's entirely dark. They stop work at sunset uh, uh, without hope of illumination of any kind. They were in, in a way that we just cannot even imagine. Even as we sit right here, we drove with cars that had lamps. We sit under now some lights. We, use, we have back lighting on our own phones. We, we just live in the light, but this, this tribe lived entirely in the darkness. And Alexander had the great gift of being able to give to them this, this wonderful, to them, magical essence of fire. Paul in the New Testament says that as he was traveling and traversing the, the globe, very uh, uh, similar regions and where Alexander the Great had gone, he used an, uh, a prophecy from the book of Isaiah that God had spoken to him about his own life and that he said it to the Romans and to the Antiochians and to other people who had uh, uh, heard him preach. He said that my mission is a fulfillment of that Isaiah prophecy that God would send somebody to be a light to the nations. That even where the Roman Empire or Alexander's empire before him or the great uh, industrial revolution of, of the West in, uh, in our own history. Though there is much technology, though there is much illumination and light bulbs and fire and all sorts of other things, yet the world without the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ sits in darkness. Your soul, if you're not a Christian, if you've not been born again and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you sit in darkness. And it is my pleasure tonight to be able to present to you the life-giving light of Jesus Christ and the gospel that you might take him and live. Christmas is a season of lights. As you find yourself in uh, 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 John chapter 8, we will read from verse 12 and even refer a little bit here and there to the surrounding passages. But Christmas is uh, known as a, a season of light, a holiday of lights. We do Christmas tree lights. We do lights on the house. If you don't do that, you're a Grinch. You're probably going to heaven. You should get Christmas lights for your house for celebrating Christmas. It's, it's, I'm sure it's somewhere in the Ten Commandments that we should be doing that and celebrate the Lord's incarnation. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a festival of lights for us. People put uh, uh, candles up before we had little fairy lights to hang up. It's a season of lights. Well, the Jews had a festival that they utilized lights in. Uh, this was uh, given to them by God called the, 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 the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. But they had sort of developed the tradition and added lighting to this whole ceremony. So, so we'll, we'll quickly rehearse the history of it. 
back in, in Israel's exodus out of uh, uh, Egypt, as they were wandering in the wilderness, God led them by divine fire that came down from heaven. And it was just like an enormous pillar going in front of them by, uh, uh, by nighttime or a large cloud in the daytime. And then God instituted, after this 40 years of miraculously uh, guiding them and, and for uh, uh, multiple months of leading them by a light of fire, God gave to them uh, the, the, the festival of booths to remember their time in the wilderness. They would s- travel to Jerusalem, pitch tents, live in them for a week, celebrate God's gracious providence and sustenance of their forefathers when they were traveling the wilderness. And as the tradition grew, like with Christmas, they sort of added new traditions, added new elements of celebration. And one of them was that in Jerusalem, with this enormous golden temple and a huge 40 football fields uh, 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 area on the outside that's all paved in beautiful marble, etc., that Herod had built, in the temple, all the Jews would sort of have this big uh, conga line, this big uh, uh, procession that would take them into the temple. And then in the uh, uh, next little section of the temple, they would have these four enormous candelabras, probably just about as high as the, uh, the roof in here. And four young men of the priests would climb these huge ladders, and they would light these seven-tipped candelabras, and they would light up at nighttime, sort of like, a, I guess, an ancient version of fireworks uh, and glow sticks and things like that. They would have a big lighting ceremony, and the light from those oil fires would light up the whole city. They used to say that from any rooftop in the whole city, you could see the light coming from the great Mount Zion where the temple was. And then they did fire twirling and flame torch dances, and they sung and they did all that. That was their version of Christmas caroling. What they were remembering was when our fathers were walking in the darkness of the wilderness, God was among them as a light. And if you wanted to go to the promised land, And if you wanted to go and receive life, and you wanted to not die in the wilderness or be killed by the Egyptians, follow God in the light that he is presenting in front of. Follow him, you'll live. Go with him, the light is God himself. And at the peak of that festival, John chapter 8 tells us that Jesus stands up, and you can imagine, he's sort of, he's got himself front row tickets, he's in the nosebleeder section of the, of the crowd, and as the young men are lighting these big candles, he probably gets on some kind of a, 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 a surface or, or, or elevated uh, 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 partition of ground, he gets himself some, uh, uh, some elevation, and he cries out what we're told in John chapter 8 verse 12. So look at John now, this is what Jesus says, in the middle of that festival, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. May God bless this to our hearing this this evening. Jesus calls himself the light of life and thereby identifies himself with the truer meaning and the full uh, understanding of the light that they were celebrating from the wilderness. In other words, he's saying the ancient Israelites needed to follow the light to be saved. You have to follow me to be saved. They looked to the light and saw God's presence among them. Look to me and see God's presence in your midst. I'm not just Moses pointing you to the light of God. I am the light of God come down from heaven. Therefore, outside of me is darkness. That was extremely provocative. 
In no uncertain terms, he was calling himself God. He was equating himself with the authority and the power and the life-giving essence of God. And he was provoking these people. And the rest of the chapter is them being quite thoroughly provoked. They got annoyed at what he said. They argued his point. They, they, they even used a your mum joke on him. They said that his mum was of loose morals, and that's why you don't even know who your real dad is, Jesus, because we all heard the rumor about Joseph. The Yeah, okay, sure, it was an angel, Mary. We all, we all know the truth. They, they start arguing and going back and forth, and Jesus keeps appealing to Scripture and to the Father's authority and the fact that he came from heaven. They were thoroughly provoked. It's meant to be a provocative thought, but it is also what we can't lose sight of in verse 12. Jesus didn't start the fight. They started the fight. He made a gracious invitation, and that's what we're looking at tonight. That if you're outside of Jesus Christ and you don't believe in him and you're not saved, then to you is held out the light of life. And if you're a Christian, this is what we praise the Lord and celebrate this time of year. The light of the world come into our existence. We even sing it at, uh, uh, in, well, in uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This whole light theme is very heavy at Christmas. Hark the, uh, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Does it annoy anybody else that that doesn't exactly precisely rhyme? Do you ever sing it and say, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Because he's a little bit too you know, OCD to be able to enjoy that hymn. And it's a great hymn. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Now that's not just tremendous poetry on the part of the Wesley brothers in the 1700s. That's scripture. That's Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, the last book in the Old Testament. Before 400 years of silence, Malachi the prophet says, the Messiah is coming and, and the, he will be the son of righteousness. Uh, the, the son of righteousness, he says, will, will rise with healing in its wings. The, the rising sun, depending on your status and where you're living and how much protection you have, can be a horrible thing that, that kills you and burns you and dries you out. Or it can be something that brings warmth and life and light. And that is what Jesus will be to any who believe. Or Isaiah 9 verse 2, a, a popular Christmas verse that we, that we read. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Or Isaiah chapter 60, towards the end of the book, then he, he prophesies the coming of Jesus and says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Or oh, this light theme continues as we come into the New Testament and you have this guy called Simeon. And he's an old guy. He's not a priest, we don't think, but he had a prophetic gifting. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was waiting for the, 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 the consolation of Israel when God would send his Messiah. And the Holy Spirit had prophetically told him that he would not die until he sees God's Messiah, the Christ. And he's in the temple one day and he's praying and he's doing his, his duties. And then a poor rural couple hop off a donkey and they march on into the temple and they go over to a priest in order to have their child, Yeshua, in English Jesus, circumcised on the eighth day since his birth. And he sees that child and he knows that that tiny little eight-day-old child is the fulfillment of not only the prophecy God gave him, 
but the prophecies of all of the Old Testament. He runs up to that child, he picks him up, and he starts to sing a poem. And he says, uh, the Luke chapter 2, verse 28 uh, following says, He took him up in his arms. And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This little baby is and would become a light to all of the Gentiles, all of the nations, to every country on earth, and a glory, a culmination, the the whole purpose of the existence of Israel as a nation, and they would and will glory in him. This is why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He was the point of all of the Old Testament prophecies. He was the, the, the light into a dark world, and we have to then ask what that means. What is it? When Jesus says he's light... It's obviously in contradistinction and conflict to the darkness. And there's three elements that we can think of darkness. As Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He he is saying that without him, without following him, without having him, you are in darkness. The scripture speaks of our natural state as one of darkness. And that's not just a matter of physics and light waves and photons and luminescence. What God means by darkness is ignorance and immorality and lostness. In our ignorance, it's like we're we're, we're sitting in a library and all of the tomes of knowledge that we would ever need to know to get to heaven, to understand our purpose, to know why you exist, to know how we are to act, all of those things are written down by all of the scribes in all of the books, but you are sitting in the middle of this rich library in utter darkness. Mankind is naturally ignorant, partly because we reject God's word and we suppress what we know, partly because outside of the light of scripture, humankind uh, divulges into foolishness. We, we, we worship the creation, we make up mythologies and theologies, the demons come in and tell a whole bunch of fables, people attach themselves to it, they believe that the month they were born in correlates to some star that was passing by Pisces and some moon, and then that's their personality forever. We are fools. We're in ignorance. We have no coherent worldview. We don't understand the world we're in, the God who made it, the purpose for our life, what we're supposed to do, or how to solve the great issues that we face, namely our own unrighteousness. This is ignorance. We're in darkness in terms of ignorance. We're also in darkness in terms of our immorality. That is that when you talk about things done in the darkness, that's code for shameful things. There's certain places, there's certain bedrooms, there's certain clubs that if you walk in and you switched on the light, you'd have a lot of young ladies running to cover themselves up. You'd have a lot of young men walking away into the corner in shame. You'd have a lot of people calling other people's parents because there's underage people there, because there's illegalities going on. Crime, shameful things, disgusting things thrive in darkness. Jesus said this in John chapter 3 when he was speaking to Nicodemus. It says, this is the judgment of the world. That the light has come into the world, but the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You ever come out in the middle of the night because you think you can hear a, 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 a break-in, and so you grab yourself a, a baseball bat if you're more 
country than me, you grab yourself a rifle and you walk into the kitchen and you slam on the lights ready to face whatever burly uh, thief it is and, and it's, just, it's just four rats over, over some dishes that you forgot to put away and they scurry and you scream like a woman who shouldn't own a gun or a baseball bat. But not just me, it's happened before to you, I'm sure. <coughs> The rats hate the light. They're there to sneak and to, and to chew and to do that which should not be seen. Or, or cockroaches, when you, when you switch on the light and cockroaches just dart away and you'll get that disgusting feeling. And God says that's, that's what it was like for Jesus. That he came into the world and he was the light shining and, and the people who love sin and unrighteousness scurried away from him under the fridges and the couches and back to the rotting corpses in the grave because they hate being exposed to the light. This is our natural state. When we're, we're ignorant, we're also immoral in our actions, we're unrighteous, and therefore we are lost. This darkness really, really uh, 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 denotes our, our lostness, that we're like a ship on the open seas in the pitch black with no landmarkers around us and no lighthouses to guide us as to which portion of land we're sailing past and we're up and down in the seas and the scripture says we're tossed to and fro and we're just following our heart this way to destruction and then following the devil this way to destruction and then somebody gives us terrible spiritual advice so we follow that way unto destruction. We're lost. This is our natural state. We are ignorant. We have no clue. We are immoral, we have no righteousness, and we are lost. We have no grounding. We have no path or direction. And to that, Jesus then, into our need of a lamp for our feet, into our uh, uh, need of light onto the books, into our need of needing a lighthouse so that we're not lost, Jesus becomes all these things. And into our ignorance, he becomes the light of truth. He is the one who reveals the deepest and truest and most marvelous things about God, about us, about the world, about God's plan of salvation to us. Uh, what we did not know about our sin, he reveals. What we did not know about God, he reveals. What we did not know about his plan of salvation, Jesus reveals. John chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. John writes about Jesus coming and says... Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That is to say that John could speak of the entire life and ministry and teaching of Jesus as this. Somebody who was God, a man who was God, was making God known without guessing. He wasn't a shaman or a brahmin or a guy with a good guess or a great estimation or who had a, an experience up on a mountain one day or who found mushrooms growing under a rock and entered into the psychedelic spiritual realm and came back with a message. He's not somebody with limited knowledge or, or, or a fraction of truth from or about God. He is God. He can tell us everything about God. He's our creator. He can tell us why he made us. He's also our saviour sent from heaven, therefore can tell us the only way out of our darkness of ignorance. Jesus said, as, as the Pharisees start picking a fight with him, because he said he's the light, Jesus said back to them, He who sent me is true, and I declare to you the world what I have heard from him. Jesus said, this is part of why I came. You're in ignorance, 
I'm the light. I'm coming in to tell you the truth that you never could have arrived at, that you never could have known. Jesus is the light of truth. He's also the light of righteousness. Now, in this sense, the prophets foretold of the Messiah coming that he was going to be the final prophet, the final king, the final great uh, priest who would be able to come and do what none of the other leaders or the judges or the prophets of the Old Testament could ever do, and that would be lead Israel back to a righteous life before God. They were just a straying people. They kept on turning to idolatry. They kept on breaking God's law, dismantling their covenant obligations. And, and there was a good king like Josiah. Every now and then there'd be a great king who sort of kills all the false prophets and slaughters all the bad priests and reforms stuff and gets a bit of a revival going. But eventually they just fall back, They're back into sin. And the prophets foretold a time when Israel's Messiah would come and set her straight and establish her righteousness, and lead us into into morality, into law-keeping. Of course, this was Jesus himself. He was a light to Israel in that sense. He was going to rise like the sun, and instead of burning them, heal them back to righteousness by giving them new hearts. He was going to heal the sickness of of their sinful immorality and be a light for their healing. This is where a lot of people say, and maybe this is you, maybe this is a friend of yours, who will say, I've tried Jesus, met Jesus, went to the place of people who love Jesus, apparently, and I got mistreated, abused, and lied to, and, and they're, they're hypocrites there, and, and, and they hurt me, and it was, it was just a, a, bed, a, a bed of sin. It was, just a, it was just a crock of hypocrites, and I got the bad end of the stick. And to that, we say that that is not the Jesus of the New Testament. That if you've met a bunch of people living in hypocritical, uh, covered up, unrepentant, deep, dark sin, and they'll call themselves a church or a spiritual group or whatever Bible study you went to and whatever cult leader they might have had or whatever thing you experienced, we can say that you didn't meet Jesus because Jesus is the light who transforms people into righteousness. So sure, you tried religion or you tried Christians, but your salvation is not meant to be in any of those. Jesus isn't offering you a group of people to find or a church to go find. or He's not offering something else other than himself. People have claimed to have met Jesus, live continuously unrighteously and unrepentantly. They didn't meet Jesus. Because Jesus says, those who follow me will not walk in darkness. That's an absolute statement. So you may have tried false religion before, but you cannot write off Jesus because he is the light and people who know him become new. He gives the light of life. And therefore, we'll go back to what Jesus said. If you're still running from Jesus for that excuse, Jesus' diagnosis is, it's because you love the darkness. And yeah, maybe you got mistreated, or maybe you tried religion and it didn't work, or whatever you may say, but the ultimate source, you're also a part of that same problem. You love the darkness and don't love Jesus, who is the light, the only true light that has come into the world. Or we can say that in our lostness, Jesus becomes for us a guide. And this comes back to the same analogy that Jesus himself was using as he's open-air preaching at the big public ceremony. That he's saying the Israelites were in this wilderness. They had no clue where to go. They didn't know navigation by stars. They didn't know how to map out the wilderness of Sinai that they were in. They'd been slaves for hundreds of years and hadn't quite developed that. They were were just a million-person group camping in the wilderness with nowhere to go. 
no clue of where to uh, uh, start walking to. But God became a light that guided them. And there's Jesus. That in your lostness of wondering, what on earth is the purpose on this world? This, this wilderness of a life that we've been given. What, why am I here? Are we just here as the, the secular humanists tell us we're here as, as, as one instance of the blind, guideless universe experiencing itself as random atoms mix with others and molecules develop and, and you have what we call self-consciousness, but you're really nothing more than just some kind of fizzle of chemicals that look like you do for the moment and you'll die, go back into the dust and cease to exist or experience anything. Merry Christmas. Do you you realize why atheists don't have an annual celebration of of Charles Darwin's conception, right? Or his birth, right? Or or, or Nietzsche's, right? That's just not the case. They don't do that because that's a hopeless, dark, lost understanding of the world. And it's wrong, to, to be more to the point. That as people, and maybe this is you, or maybe you remember this, that as a Christian who's, who's been saved, you remember the complete lostness in your, uh, your pre-Christian life of having no clue what you're doing, why you're here, or what is all the point. But Jesus becomes for us a guide to sail us home to glory. The lighthouse that directs us to salvation and eternity in the arms of God. Look back at what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does it mean when he says follow? Countless people sort of jump on this and and say, salvation isn't just by believing, it takes you to do something. You have to follow Jesus. You have to establish a lifestyle after Jesus. You have to get good at following Jesus, then you get eternal life. Not only is that at direct odds to all of the New Testament's teachings, it also is not at all what the word follow here in this context means. We know that Jesus uses the word follow instead of, say, believe for a contextual reason. Because because in in the example that he's using and drawing from, it would not be of a benefit to the Israelites to be standing in the wilderness and say about the light that was disappearing over the horizon, I believe in that light. What was necessary for the Israelites to do was actually follow the light. And so Jesus uses that analogy to say, to really and truly believe in me is like following the light in the wilderness of darkness. He used the word follow, not because you need to start obeying or doing something to then be able to be in the light. He uses that word follow more comprehensively. First of all, what he means by follow is believe that he is from God. In this chapter, as he argues with the, the Pharisees who, who, who deny that he's the light of the world, that he has a right to speak that way, that he had any right to interrupt the Jews' worship of God. Who does this guy think he is? God worshiping our worship of, interrupting our worship of God. Well, he was God. That's the first part that it means to believe. If you're an Israelite, in the, in the mass community, in the wilderness, the very first part of being benefited by that pillar of light is that you have to believe it was not a magic show put on the, by the Egyptian priests. It wasn't some kind of demonic display of magic. It was, it was God sending something from heaven for your benefit. This is the first thing that, that following that light meant. You had to believe it was from God. And the same is true of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 42 of this chapter, I came from God. 
In fact, even in this, uh, uh, in this statement, I am the light of the world, he keeps borrowing the divine name, Yahweh, which as it comes into Greek is egoimi, which is in the English, I'm, I am. He's using a double up. He's saying, I'm, I am the light of the world. He's literally telling me, I'm Yahweh, the light of the world. Follow me or perish in your sins. That's what he tells them later on in the chapter. And that's what's getting them so offended, but that is what you need to believe tonight to be saved, is in order to follow Jesus, it means, first of all, believe that he is God come into flesh. This is Christmas. Not just a nice story about a a poor rural couple who found a little place in an inn. Not a nice story about angels and shepherds or wise men and stars and gifts and trinkets or a tyrannical Herod and and a holiday to Egypt and then on back and living in Bethlehem. The story of Christmas is not those things. The story and the glory of the story of Christmas is God becoming human flesh, starting with a single-cell zygote in his mother's womb, growing to a baby and being born in blood and, 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 the, and, and the, 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 the amniotic fluid of a child and then being nursed and changed and growing and learning to feed. What an insulting thing for a, for a Pharisee to hear. But this is what Jesus was saying. To follow him means believe I'm from God. And then secondly, it means believe in me and repent of your sins. Again, think of the Israelite. If you're going to follow that light, you have to throw away, basically repent, of whatever other direction you were going. As, as, uh, as uh, Nathaniel and uh, Rebecca were arguing and they're pulling out their map of the Sinai Desert and saying, babe, I think we need to go this way. You have no clue. We're going this way. It's around the desert. And then the light appears and starts going that way. Both of them have to shut up, admit they were wrong, and follow where the light was going. This is what we each need to do. We each need to repent and think, I thought life was about this. I thought this is how I was going to get to heaven. I thought I was fairly good. I thought that maybe through my self, uh, self, self-harm or through my, through my substance abuse or through my religiosity or through my, my pain to church, whatever was going to happen, I was going to get to heaven my way. And here's Jesus. He says, you can't do it. You're in darkness. You're in the desert. You are lost. You're immoral. I died for you. And by my death is the only way a sinner can be declared righteous before God and forgiven for all of their sins. So follow this light by believing it is God, repenting of your own thoughts about how to get to God, and trust in Jesus' own death on the cross and resurrection from the grave as the only way that you can have a salvation from your sin. Believe he's God. Believe in his gospel and repent of your own thoughts. And then thirdly, live unto him. This is the idea of the, of, of the, the, the fuller idea of the language of follow. When Jesus says, follow me, he means believe the truth about him, have faith in his good news, and actually live unto him. In other words, Jesus is saying that there's no such thing as somebody who receives him as savior from sin and does not receive him also as Lord over their life. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He was Lord at his birth. He was Lord every moment of his life. When you come to Jesus and have faith, you're not being asked by a nice, polite, divine Macca's teenage girl with a headset on. She's not asking, you'd like some salvation. Would you like lordship with that? 
Or, or do you prefer living your own life? Because that's totally an option. I don't have to upgrade you. It's only 50 cents extra. Do you want a large Lord for your life? Do, do you want me to throw in a little uh, 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 obedience item with that Happy Meal as well? No, you just want salvation. That's, fine. that's not how God works. You are given a whole Jesus. You have faith in Jesus who is Savior and Lord. Well, you don't receive Jesus. This is, we know that this is in Jesus' language because it becomes a part of the argument later on, is that it says, as he's preaching and arguing with the Pharisees, many people believed in him. And then he turned to his believers and said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. For only, the only true disciples, he tells them, are those who receive me and follow after me. And if you do that, then the, the sun sets you free. So, so, of course, he's not conditioning our salvation from sin on our obedience to him. But he is saying that to be saved from sin is to have faith in him. And that faith is, in part, an inward desire, an inward uh, posture, and an inward commitment to come to Jesus as Lord and do whatever he says. That is a part of the light of life that he offers. You won't stay in darkness. If you're a Christian, you will become somebody who walks slowly but surely and slower than we wish it was, but surely because God promises that you will slowly become more and more righteous, more and more aware of God's law, more in love with God's character and nature, and you will look more like him or you are not born again. If you are in your sin right now, in the ignorance of not knowing how to get to heaven, thinking yourself wise but being a fool, if you're in the darkness of immorality, hoping that the light never shines on you, though it will on judgment day, and if you're in the darkness of lostness, of directionless wandering, to you, Jesus says, I am the light that is your threefold solution and 10,000 charms beside. Come to me and be forgiven, be changed, and be led home to safety. Jesus says, that we do not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Have you? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in that act of commitment to following? Of saying everywhere else, every other ground is sinking sand. Every other path leads to hell. Every other decision I could make or muster up will leave me further from God, not closer to God. Jesus is the light. He's the only thing blazing in the sun with all glory. Every other thing is a, is a silly, ignorant, idiotic, immoral, lost solution. But Jesus is sailing to heaven. I will throw myself towards him and receive forgiveness of sin because he died for me. I will receive leadership because he is the Lord. And I will receive a savior for my soul. John Newton was born in 1725. He had a, he had a father who was a sailor in the Navy of England, and he had, a, and this is like heyday England, like they're, they're colonizing everything, putting Alexander the Great to shame. And here's England at their heyday, 1725, John Newton born, and uh, his mother, a, a nonconformist Christian, right, she wasn't a part of the big fancy rich church that knelt down and took the wafer and wore the hats and whatever, she just loved Jesus and went to church where they preached the Bible. That, that's John Newton's mum. And she prayed for her son, and she loved her son, and then she left her son to be with Jesus when he was just at the age of seven. And he was without a mother and without a Christian witness in his life. And he was taken by his father, and by the time he was 11, he was then living and working on naval ships 
in the English Navy, going around the Atlantic. Uh, He was then, in his adult years, kicked out of the Navy because he tried to desert. So dishonorably discharged, I don't know what he did, tried to run away on an island, swim away in the ocean. He did a Jonah. He was running away from the commander. They got him up, they shackled him, and then as a slave vessel passed by, they gave, them, they gave him to them, not as a slave, you don't do that to white people. They threw him onto the sea and said, he can work for you, he'll be fine. And what did he do? He, thought, he says in his writings, the slave trade is a convenient and very profitable business. I, I bet it was. And so here at the, this, 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 this man whom people said his swearing made sailors blush. So he's, he's like a concreter in today's world, I think. He, 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 he entered into the slave trade then, too sinful for the Navy. That says a lot if you know anything about the Navy. And so, so he's in the slave trade. He's making a killing. He's, he's, he's thriving. He's successful, if you can call that kind of disgusting uh, uh, act and life successful. But he's making a lot of coin. And then at some point, as he uh, engages with some other Christians, nearly dies on a storm on the Atlantic Ocean, he gives his life to Jesus. And he says, I've run from you. I've blasphemed you, I've sworn against you, and I've mistreated other people, but I believe in Jesus. I want my sins forgiven. Now, here's the part that usually doesn't make it into the sermon stories. He stayed a slave trader. He's a Christian now, walking in darkness. Now, we have to give him at least a little bit of grace, because he has no pastor, He has no Christian friends. He's just a lone dude on a boat in the Atlantic Ocean, rich from his trade. And he doesn't repent of that. And he continues to live this way until God, forcing him to repent, strikes him so sick that he can't travel on boats anymore because of his balance. And he's stuck now in England, uh, 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 landlocked. And what do you do when you're an ex-slave trader looking for a job? You become a pastor, apparently. He applied and he was, he was received and, and he just went about his business and he got quite an influential uh, pastorate among this large but very poor congregation. And, and then his conscience starts to tick over as he's reading the Bible, as he's preaching the gospel of forgiveness and of peace and of freedom from the slavery of sin and of love to all mankind and of love of neighbor and following God's law. And he realizes that he has been all this time Neutral to or actively engaged in the stealing, the murdering, the selling of other human beings. He comes to Jesus and confesses his darkness in his life. He says, I am a child of light and I ought not be doing this. He, he gets involved with a, a young man just starting out in, in the, uh, in the uh, 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 parliament in England. I wonder if you've heard of his name. A young, young man by the name of Billy. William Wilberforce, his name will be known to history. William Wilberforce uh, was a parliamentarian that John Newton became a pastoral friend of for over 20 years. And he mentored him and he encouraged him and he taught him the Bible. And he said, you stay in parliament because God is going to use you there. And the, and the Clapham sect, uh, John Newton and William Wilberforce and others started to do all that they could to outlaw and disband and destroy England's blasphemous and horrible reputation in the slave trade, to destroy the, trans- uh, the, the Atlantic slave trade um, 
especially around the West Indies and in Africa. He founded with some other men the Anti-Slavery Society. He wrote the account of the slave trade in which he recites his own sin and describes his own repentance from such horrible acts. He testifies against slavery at parliamentary hearings. And with William Wilberforce, they end up outlawing the slave trade in Britain and all of Britain's colonies. And then he dies nine months later. He had a good friend, a poet named William Cowper, who had debilitating depression and was constantly annoying John Newton. John Newton never said that. You just read the diary and you get the equivalent of 3 a.m. pastoral calls every Tuesday, the, the, the knocking on the office every Monday morning. Was your sermon about me? Am I going to hell? Just the, the, the anxious, depressed man who John Newton just loved and passed it on through to his early death. But Cowper and uh, 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 Newton wrote hymns, the most famous of which was John Newton's Amazing Grace. This is what he sung. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. You may not be a slave trader. You may not be a swearer that makes naval uh, uh, soldiers blush. But make no mistake, you're a wretch. You're a wretch as far as God looks at you. As the light shines down from heaven, he sees filth, immorality, ignorance and lostness and then into this darkness into your darkness Jesus came from heaven lived as a light consumed your darkness was 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 was, was expired and and snuffed out his light on the cross and then broke like the rising sun again and is the son of righteousness the son of healing and gives to anybody that believes in him the light of life believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved let's pray Father God, we are, we are unworthy the first moment we're born. We're unworthy every day of our life. We're unworthy a moment before we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our own standing, we're unworthy the moments afterwards. And as we walk with you for years, still we're unworthy of eternal life. And like John Newton, maybe we allow these horrible sins to continue on in our life. We're still unworthy of you. And even if we repent of those and follow you still, we're unworthy. There is not a day in the Christian's life that you have not been infinitely gracious to us. Well, this will be true up until the moment of our death that we have enough sin to condemn us. But from now into all of eternity, in Jesus, we have enough righteousness to save us. There was blood shed by Jesus to wash us and to forgive us. So Lord God, we do not pray now on the merits of our ability to follow or how lightful and lawful and righteous and knowledgeable our life is. We throw all of that to the side, like Paul said, as rubbish, as scuba, as dung on a pile. We throw it to the side and know our only hope of right standing with our Father is that Jesus is our righteousness and that Jesus is the absorbing of all of our sin and the taking of all of our punishment. We pray, Lord God, today that you would shine your light of peace and forgiveness into hearts that have not yet received him. And we pray that those who know you would go out as lights of the world, lighting candles and lights for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel and shining the light into this, this dark, dark world. 
We trust the power of the gospel to transform sinners. We thank you for the power of the gospel which transformed us. And we thank you for the glory of the gospel in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said? This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.